As you head to the fourth chapter of Ruth, I want to give you a little bit of background on what's been happening in the story so far. Ruth is a young woman after whom this book is named, and she's a woman who's not from the nation of Israel. Most of the people in the Bible that you meet who are given a name in the story of God's word, they grow up in a place called Israel. Now, some of them exist before Israel was founded as a nation, but even those people are, are dis- they're, um, ancestors of those who would eventually be called the nation of Israel. Ruth is different. Ruth doesn't speak Hebrew as far as we know. She doesn't look like, sound like, or really fit into Israelite culture. And yet, we find her as the main character of one of the most beautiful stories of love and commitment that exists in God's word. Ruth is a young woman who married a man who passed away relatively quickly after their wedding. And in addition to him dying, his brother died and his father died. And so Ruth found herself a widow legally and relationally connected to another widow, her mother-in-law, and the two of them only had each other in the world. And so her mother-in-law, whose name is Naomi, said to Ruth, I'm going to go back to my homeland. I'm not from Moab, where you grew up, Ruth. I'm from Israel, from a town called Bethlehem. So I'm going to go back to that city, and I recommend that you and I just kind of go our separate ways. There's no reason for you to follow me, an older woman who has no real prospects for remarriage, back to a place where no one would know you, where, frankly, many people would see you as an enemy, because at the period of time when this story happens, Israel and Moab are at war with one another. And yet Ruth says to her mother-in-law early in this story, no, I'll go wherever you go, where you live, I'll live, where you die, I'll die, and I'm even willing, and many of us know how hard this decision is to make, Ruth says, I'm even willing to surrender my faith. I will give up the religion of my parents and my ancestors and embrace your God, the God of Israel. And so Ruth does that. She follows Naomi back to her hometown. When they get there, they have no real prospects uh, to, to find a way out of their poverty or their loneliness. Both women being widowed really have no legal standing in that day and age. And I'm not saying that's necessarily right, but that's the way it was then. And so Ruth decides to go out into the field. She's just going to kind of pick up the scraps from the, the barley harvest that's been happening. And out in the field, she meets a man whose name is Boaz. When she gets back to her mother-in-law that night, she sort of drops Boaz's name in casual conversation offhand along the way, and her mother-in-law lights up. For the first time, we see Naomi, a woman who's been made bitter by the death of her two sons and her husband. We see hope come alive in her. And so she and Ruth hatch this kind of crazy plan where Ruth is going to go out to the place where Boaz is harvesting his barley fields, and she's going to do a few particular things in order to get one-on-one with Boaz, And then in this really kind of tense, climactic moment, she's going to look Boaz in the eye and say, you need to redeem my mother-in-law and I. Now, you and I live in a world where there's no legal obligation to a widow, but in the day and age in which Ruth was written, this was very normal. It would be normal for a man who had a distant relative who became a widow to reach out to her and to kind of um, graft her into his family so that he could care for her and so that she would have uh, some legal standing, some protection from the law, and a future. So Ruth approaches Boaz, this is where we finished our story last week, and she confronts him, she's very direct, and she says, the time has come for you to redeem me. And Boaz doesn't say no, which is maybe what we would expect, him being confronted with this plan out of nowhere. He says, okay, let's do it, but here's the problem. There's one person in line in front of me, there's one man who's technically closer to you and Naomi, and therefore has the right to redeem you before I would be able to do that legally. If I tried to do it now, it'd be a scandal. And that's the last thing we need because Ruth is already a foreigner in an enemy land who doesn't look like or sound like the rest of the Israelites. So she already has the deck stacked against her. So Boaz hatches this plan that he's going to go to the gate in, Jerusalem, excuse me, in Bethlehem, the place where people come and go every morning, 
and he's going to confront this other man whose name we don't know. In fact, if you were to read it yourself at the beginning of chapter 4, the Bible refers to him as what's-his-name or so-and-so, which is kind of fun. So he does what a what's-his-name would do. He flakes out as soon as Boaz confronts him and says, you have the right to marry Ruth. At first, the guy's kind of interested. And then he goes, well, what happens when we have an, an heir? If, we give, if she gives birth to a son, if we're married and she gives birth to a son, then would that son inherit all of my stuff and all of Ruth and Naomi's stuff? And Boaz is like, yes. And at that point, the guardian says, no, thank you. I'm out. It's all you, Boaz. So this is the point where I want us to pick the story up. And I want to take a small moment that might be easy to skip right past in the reading of the story and highlight to you that the Bible is trying to tell you that what's happening with Ruth and Boaz is itself amazing, but is connected back to the full history of the nation of Israel and even forward in time to the birth of Jesus, the Messiah who came at the first Christmas, the Jesus about whom we just sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us, the Messiah who was long awaited. So let's see what happens after Boaz has made this legal deal. How do the people around him at the gate of Bethlehem respond? This is Ruth chapter four, beginning in verse 11. All of the people who were at the gate and the elders who are a group of men who have sort of the ability to watch this legal exchange happen between Boaz and this other guy. They've been called together for this meeting. All of them together reply. Now that's interesting because Boaz hasn't spoken to any of them yet. He's been speaking to this other man whose name we don't know about the deal that they're going to cut so that Boaz can redeem Ruth and Naomi. And yet the people feel compelled, emotionally moved by what they've seen. So they cry out and say, we are witnesses to this thing. This is legally binding, this is good, this is right. May the Lord make the woman, they're talking about Ruth, who is entering your home to be like Rachel and like Leah. Those are some really old school Bible names, really close to the beginning of the family tree of Israel. Both of whom built up the house of Israel. May you also prosper in Ephrathah, which is the region in which Bethlehem is, and may you become famous in Bethlehem. They go on to say, may your family become like the family of Perez, whom Tamar, another woman from way back in the family tree of Israel, whom Tamar bore to Judah through, through the descendants that the Lord gives you by this young woman, Ruth. Now, my wife and I have a policy in our home that we work really hard to not play matchmaker. Uh, oftentimes, pastors have the opportunity. We meet really sharp, uh, fun young people who are single and are interested in maybe finding a lifelong relationship, and we get to know their personality and their character, and it can be tempting to start to go, I know who you need to meet. I know who you need to get together with. I think this thing could go really well. But we try not to do that because we've often seen pastors uh, matchmake where there really isn't a match there. Uh, there's no flame. There's no connection, and so we want to avoid that. What we do do at my house, though, is we celebrate when young people get together who need to find one another. It's not to say that singleness can't be a gift. I know certainly this time of year singleness can be very lonely, uh, but more often than not, singleness is really just a period of waiting. Not always, but more often than not, God will do something really miraculous and amazing to bring somebody into your life that you would have never seen coming. And so when that happens, we, my wife and I, from a distance, really get excited about that. Uh, and we celebrate that, and we try to get involved with those people and let them know that there's premarital counseling and that's an option for them, and oftentimes they, they want me to perform the wedding ceremony, and so we feel like we get a front row seat. I say all of that to tell you, even though we love celebrating when people finally find one another, I have never shouted out in my home, may the Lord make the woman like Rachel and Leah. It's just never been uh, the first thought on my mind, right, when somebody finally finds their match. I've never said, may she give you children like God gave Perez to Tamar and Judah. Now here's why that's that, that's that way for me. Many of you may not be familiar with this, but the stories of these women, Rachel and Leah and Tamar, they're actually very sad stories. They're, they're rife with tragedy. 
These women had very challenging existences. They themselves had very deep and old personal problems that came from their families. And so in a way, there's kind of a twist here at the end of the story that's surprising. It's not surprising that Boaz meets Ruth. We talked about that two weeks ago. It's not surprising that Ruth and Boaz find one another and find in one another what they're looking for for a spouse. It's also not surprising that the God who sustains and loves all people would provide redemption for Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth in the person of Boaz, that they together would have a family. They eventually have a baby named Obed. Two generations later, a guy named David is born, who you've probably heard of if you, even if you don't attend a church on a regular basis. David, who becomes the most successful and famous king in Israel. And then eventually, on down through the family tree, Jesus is born. The baby Jesus comes from the family line of Boaz and Ruth. So it shouldn't surprise us that they find each other. That's what God's been doing behind the scenes. He's been pulling those strings and pushing those buttons from the beginning. What is surprising is that a group of people who intend to encourage Boaz, who intend to reach out to him and say, we love you so much that we hope your life goes well, that they would reference women like Rachel and Leah and Tamar. From my perspective, this is one of the most important parts of the story of Ruth. There is a principle for us here that deals directly with what it means to be human and who God is in the midst of our suffering. So what I want to try to show you is that these women, Rachel and Leah and Tamar, also Boaz's mother, Rahab, and Ruth herself, these five women, though unwanted, play a pivotal role in what God is doing And I think by briefly walking through some of their suffering, we can connect with and relate to the idea of waiting for God even when things are hard, even when they're deeply painful, even when we ourselves feel rejected and unloved. First in the blessing is Leah. Leah is a woman who uh, got married to a man sort of by accident. This is one of the more interesting stories in the Old Testament. Um, A guy wanted to get married. His name was Jacob, and so he went to uh, a a distant land to meet a woman. He ends up at a well where he needs to drink some water, and he meets this lady named Rachel. And they sort of have this interesting interaction where the Bible tells us that they fell in love, and so the man goes back to Rachel's father, as many men do, and says, I'd like to marry your daughter. What do we need to do to work this out? And Rachel's father says, you're going to have to work for me for seven years. And the guy says yes to that, which is kind of unbelievable. So he works in this man's fields for seven years. The seven years end, and the wedding night comes. And everybody's excited. The man is there. Rachel's there. Her sister Leah's there. But Leah's kind of always around. Nobody really notices that. The big twist is, in the dark, after the feast, it's not Rachel who goes into the marriage tent with the man. It's her sister Leah. Leah and her father tricked this guy and he ends up consummating a marriage with the wrong woman, a woman that he didn't want to marry, a woman who from the very beginning only represented a burden to him. This remains the theme of Leah's life. She eventually gives birth to 10 sons who will become 10 of the 12 tribal leaders of the nation of Israel as that nation grows. But despite all of that, she lives forever in the shadow of her sister, Rachel. Rachel is the woman whom this man intended to marry. And so he goes back to the father of Rachel and Leah and he says, I still want to marry Rachel, even though I've accidentally gotten married to Leah. What do I have to do? And the guy says, seven more years. At the close of those seven years, 14 years in total, he finally marries Rachel. But here's what they find out on their wedding night. She's barren. The most important thing that she could offer to her husband in that society, again, I'm not saying that stands today, but this is the world that they lived in, she's unable to fulfill. Meanwhile, her sister, the unwanted sister, seems to be perpetually pregnant. As a result, Rachel is angry, she becomes jealous, she becomes very bitter, and she pushes her body and herself to the point that she actually ends up passing away at the gates of Bethlehem, of all places, as she's trying to give birth to her second and what would be her final son. 
Then you come on down through the blessing that these people have shouted out. First there's Rachel, then there's Leah. Those ladies seem to be a little bit of a confusing person to compare this brand new relationship to. But what about Tamar? Maybe her story is a little bit better. It's not. Tamar, uh, unfortunately, has her first husband pass away. And so she marries his brother, which is common practice then. I'm not recommending that to you, but it's what they used to do, okay? And he passes away. So then the father-in-law says, well, I've got one more son, but you're not going to marry him because all my sons die when they marry you. And so he basically locks Tamar away. You can think of like a, a Disney princess in a tower situation. And she has to break out and sneak and do some different things that are, frankly, uh, not very much fun for her in order to finally have an, an heir, a son herself. She is seen as dangerous. She is seen as damaged goods. And yet the people of Bethlehem are screaming at Boaz. They're clapping and raising their hands and saying, may your family be like Tamar's family. Are you sure? I mean, if I'm Boaz, I'm going, I don't know. We couldn't have picked anybody else but Tamar and Rachel and Leah. Then think about Boaz's family. You may not know this, but Boaz's mother is the most famous prostitute in the Bible, a woman named Rahab. She's not an Israelite by nationality. She lives in a walled city called Jericho, and because she helps a couple of Israel's spies case the city and prepare to take it down, she's spared when the city is conquered. She becomes the mother of Boaz, and in some ways, though the Bible doesn't say this explicitly, it would be reasonable to assume that part of the reason why Boaz, a man who has property and money, a man who is kind, who has character and integrity, maybe the reason that a man like that has been unable to marry into his early old age could be because of his reputation that his mother was a harlot all her life. It's very possible that part of his reputation is people saying under their breath as he walks through town, well, sure, they say his father's name is Salmon, the Israelite man, but can we really know for sure, considering who Rahab is and what she did? And then we think, of course, of Ruth. Rahab, the mother-in-law now, probably deceased by this time, but Ruth herself previously married, a foreigner, a legal liability. Many of us are married. Very few, if any of us, have had to go to the courthouse to fight for the right to marry the person that we wanted to marry. Sure, we had to go and sign a form and they sent it in the mail, but that's nothing like what Boaz had to go through, to contend and argue with this other man who had the rights to Ruth. This is a beautiful act of love, but it also shows us that Ruth herself comes along with baggage and a liability. Now, why am I pointing this out to you? What does this have to do with Christmas? I want you to see this list behind me as a list of real people. Oftentimes, when we read the Bible, we assume everything is going well for everybody on every page because God is good and that's just what it means to follow God, right? No, God doesn't take away or even prevent the tragedies in our life. What he does is he goes through them with us. Each of these women gives testimony not of how amazing they could be, but testimony of what God can do in the midst of them. Somehow, their terrible stories of tragedy and loss make up more than the sum of their parts to these people who were passing through the gate of Bethlehem on that day long ago when Boaz redeemed Ruth. And it's their stories of loss, their st stories of rejection, their stories of despair and very real pain that now come to mind as blessings to be spoken onto this new marriage between Ruth and Boaz. The Bible tells us that these women and their families are somehow considered the people of God. They're actually family to Jesus. They don't know it yet. We know it because we have the Old and the New Testaments both, and we know the story of Jesus' birth. But God is redeeming and pulling in the very last people that you and I would ever pick for our team. If we were given the option to choose anybody we wanted to to become the family tree of Jesus, we would probably go with emperors and poets and philosophers and famous people who've done great things, right? We would want the lineage of Jesus to be full to the brim with legacy. And yet God's plan is to pick weak and broken people 
to draw them to himself and out of that brokenness to bring about the transformation of the world in the person of Jesus Christ the Messiah. Yes, these women's stories do represent human betrayal and abandonment, abuse and pain and suffering, and the grief of very serious loss. But because Yahweh, the living God, the God whom Jesus of Nazareth refers to as Father in the New Testament, our Father, if we ourselves are Christians. He is active, he is powerful, and he can redeem anybody from the worst circumstances. He can draw you back from the very edge of the cliff between life and death. So when the people of Bethlehem bless Rahab's son, Boaz, and bless his new wife, Ruth, by evoking the names of women like Leah and Rachel and Tamar, they're not being ironic and they aren't being naive. They're calling on the most powerful stories of redemptive grace that they know. There simply is no stronger language that you can use with a newly married person than to say to them, may your future match the depth and blessing and triumph that is present in stories like these. The triumph of these women who suffered such terrible things and yet were so incredibly important and so deeply loved by the living God. Now, if you're like me, I read all of this and I'm left with a question. How can this be? How can we know for sure that these women's lives are redeemed? Leah dies in obscurity, still rejected by her husband and unwanted till the very end. Rachel passes away in childbirth, putting herself in jeopardy to try to do the one thing that she thought would redeem her. Tamar has a single son but remains an outcast. Rahab's story is somewhat redemptive, but we can assume from the way that Boaz's life goes that even she is never fully accepted in the family. And even Ruth, Ruth who walked all that way from Moab with her mother-in-law, who's the first person to hold the baby? Naomi, an Israelite woman, is in the story. So for each of these women, there's still a sting. And how? How can we know that there is a God in the background behind all of these stories? Well, that's the message of Christmas. The message of Christmas is that in any setting, in any tragedy, where there is any suffering for those who have pledged allegiance to the God of the universe, who by grace and faith have come to God and said, I will put the full weight of my life in your hands, those people can rest assured in every circumstance that even if his name isn't written on the pages of their story, Jesus' name never shows up in the book of Ruth, that we can be sure that he's there in the background behind us like he was behind these women, sustaining them and preparing them for how God would use them. Jesus would eventually be born in a stone feed trough in that very same city of Bethlehem about 1,200 years after Ruth and Boaz were married. You see, it was Jesus who loved Leah, who accepted her and gave her purpose and meaning beyond the shadow of her younger sister, Rachel. It was Jesus who opened Rachel's womb and who gave her a child after years of living in shame as her sister Leah seemed to be perpetually pregnant. It was Jesus who redeemed Tamar from being locked away by her father-in-law as a two-time widow and a liability to her family. It was Jesus who gave Rahab the faith to stake her life on the grace of God. It was Jesus who sustained Ruth, Jesus who gave Boaz the courage to redeem a widowed Moabite woman, and Jesus who brought Ruth and Boaz's son, baby Obed, into the world. Jesus who himself was born to another unwanted woman, a woman named Mary, pregnant in her teenage years, her husband-to-be preparing to quietly divorce her so as to not cause her shame, but being unwilling in his heart to father a child that wasn't his, that didn't share his DNA. Jesus, who at the end of his life in ministry, shouted out to everyone within earshot and down through history even to us. He said, the one who believes in me does not believe in me, but the one who sent me. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that in the background of all of your stories from the beginning of time, there has been an unseen God. And now you can see him. 
because Christmas happened, Jesus is here, and he is the full embodiment of God and man, and that means he is the God you can see. He is the God you can know. He says in verse 45, the one who sees me sees the one who sent me. Now that I'm here, you can see me behind Leah. You can see me behind Rachel, behind Tamar, behind Rahab, behind Ruth. I'm in the background the whole time, and if you will come to me and step into the light, that is the role that I will play for you as well. I will fix what is wrong. I will take the sin that you have built up over many years in your life, the wickedness, the darkness, the rebellion, give it to me. I can handle it. In exchange, I will give you life, a life that I lived perfectly in your place, a life that unlike your life, you can never mess up again. You can't destroy or break the relationship with God again once I've restored it. Jesus goes on to say one of the most profound things in all the Bible in verse 46. He says, I have now come as a light into the world and that everyone who believes in me now should not remain in darkness. Everyone. You are a part of everyone. You stand shoulder to shoulder with Leah and Rachel, Tamar and Rahab, Ruth and even Mary herself, that if you believe that God will keep his promises, if you believe that God is a redeemer, that God is love, then that belief, that faith that is counting on the grace of God will build a a relationship between you and God. It will open the doorway into what the Bible calls eternal life, the kind of light, the kind of life that's lived in step with God himself. So whoever you are and wherever you've been and whatever you've done or whatever has been done to you, you are a part of the everyone. The everyone who simply has to step out of the darkness into the light. That is the sum total of your responsibility and Jesus will do the rest. That is what tonight, that is what yesterday, that is what tomorrow are all about. This whole weekend is about the light coming into the darkness. Uniquely among all the faith systems in the world, our God came to us. We didn't climb the mountain and steal fire from the gods. We didn't make it to the top and prove ourselves. That light came into the darkness and he's here. And he's not stuck in this room, okay? The candles and Christmas lights are nice, but you can carry him with you in your life. There's nothing special about this sanctuary that you're in, but it happens to be the place where you are and you happen to be hearing right now the good news of Jesus. That's your opportunity. Your opportunity is to do something with the truth that has been made known. This is what we sang just a few minutes ago. Come, Emmanuel. Come. For years, for centuries, the world waited for a coming Messiah and he has arrived. And now you and I can know him. We can be with him. We can go with him and walk with him through life. But he calls you to repentance. He calls you to open your heart and your mind to him, to surrender the parts of you that don't want to believe, the parts of you that demand a a perfect portfolio of answers to your hardest questions of verifiable evidence before you would ever be willing to consider any part of Jesus' story as probable. You see, this is an act of faith. Jesus didn't say that all of those who have all of the answers can be set free from the darkness. He said those who will believe who will choose to stake their life on something that they cannot know for sure and then allow God to fill that choice up with evidence for the rest of your days on earth. Christmas Eve is the long-awaited night before the master plan of God once and for all smashed its way through human wickedness, evil, and brokenness. And now Jesus changes everything for those who by faith place their lives in God's gracious and loving and forgiving hands. And so that's the invitation for you today. For many of us, we've made that decision and we've trusted Christ with our lives and this is a moment of sort of uh, remembering or even a spiritual renewal to a certain degree to slow down long enough to remember why we had the faith in the first place to trust God. But for some of us, we've never made that decision and maybe we've made our minds up that we never will. 
That's between you and God. My responsibility to you is to tell you that if you've sort of seen through a window this morning into what life could be with God, maybe you've, for the first time in your life, heard God described as gracious and kind instead of only judgmental and angry. Maybe Jesus to you has been a good teacher, but you've never thought about the divine nature of him being behind the lives of those whom he sustains. The door is open. Jesus says all who will can come. And so what I'm gonna do is pray for us, and then we're gonna do two things at once. Just give me a second to tell you how this is gonna work. After I'm done praying, those of us who have given our lives to Jesus, who would call on him and say that he is our savior and our Lord, even if you just made that decision right now, you're in that camp, congratulations and welcome, you are invited to dine at the table of God, to come and partake of what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. There is bread here that represents the life of Jesus lived in your place, and there is juice here that represents the blood that he shed in his death. And my friends, he died, but he also came back to life, and that's why we have a local church, and you're a part of it right now this morning. So for those of you who would like to, you'll have the duration of one song. The band will play and sing. You examine yourself, pray, come with your family, come with your friends, come with your kids, whoever, and partake. You can grab the elements and go sit down, or you can take them right here at the table. It's up to you. For anybody else who isn't ready to take that step today, or for those of you who would like prayer, myself and one of our prayer team members, Carolyn, are going to be here at the front. And there's no pressure for you. We're going to stand off to the side so that you don't feel like everybody's staring at you while you come and ask for prayer. But if there's anything that we can pray for you about in your life, if you would like somebody to pray with you as you reach out to Jesus for the very first time, we would love to do that with you. There would be no higher honor in our lives. Nothing better could happen this weekend than for us to get to walk that road with you. So I'm going to pray for us, and then you guys will be free to come and take communion. And those of you who need prayer can come and speak with me and Carolyn. And then when we're done with that song, I'll come back up and tell you how we're going to end the service this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And for the miraculous way that you have woven together so many human stories to tell your story. What a blessing this weekend to be in your presence and to remember this long-awaited, long-called-for, long-wanted Savior has arrived. That life isn't coming, it's here. That the sun is not setting, it's rising. That we're not hopeless, we can be hopeful that there's so much good for us to expect from you because you are alive. We believe that, Father. For those of us who don't, I pray that you would simply stir the faith this morning, that you would give us just enough faith to step out, just enough faith to say, I've tried everything else and I have no idea what I'm supposed to do with my life, why I'm here, who I am, what I'm for. Maybe today we can be bold enough to roll the dice on you, God. Those of us who know you know that that's the most important decision we could make and that there will never be any regret. You'll never let us down, that that hope will never come back void. So, Father, as we come now to your table, Jesus, as we stand redeemed in your presence, Spirit, as we trust that you'll move in our midst, we pray these things in your name and by your power. Amen. For those of you who'd like to come and take communion,